Jewish world is a very, very big world. We focus on Israel, we focus on the States, we know about Jewish communities literally spread throughout the globe. But rarely do we stop to think about the smaller Jewish communities that are found in God-forsaken places we would never even imagine that Jews would be found. But the fact is, that when we talk about the Jews being in diaspora, they are literally in a big diaspora. And there are Jews in every corner of the globe. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe had the foresight to be able to make sure that every Jew in the world should be taken care of. His love for a fellow Jew was so tremendous and is so, has such a tremendous effect presently on the whole of Jewry that the Chabad movement continues to spread even to the smallest little distant parts of the world where you wouldn't imagine there being a need for a synagogue or for a rabbi or for the building of a strong Jewish community. One place you would never think of a strong Jewish presence is in the Far East. But Chabad now has many centers throughout the Far East. In fact, I want to show you a map that I have with me. It's a map that uh, was put together by Chabad of Beijing, Rabbi Shimon Fernlich. Rabbi Fernlich is with us today. And I just want to show you this map, which shows us literally the whole of the Far East, he being in Beijing, in Thailand, in Nepal, there are centers, in India, in uh, oh, literally in, in Kobe. I can't even read all the names of the towns over here, but we're going to go to a pro who can tell us a little bit about what it means to be with Chabad throughout the Far East, because no other Jewish organization in the world has, has taken the lead as Chabad has to really make sure that a Jew everywhere in the world, especially in the Far East, should be well taken care of. So it's a pleasure to have with us today, all the way from Beijing, China, Rabbi Shimon Freundlich. Rabbi Freundlich, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I want to tell everybody that you didn't fly in to Comac specifically for this appearance today. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, it's always uh, nice to see you. And, of course, to hear stories about China, and I've spoken to you before, and I've heard just such amazing stories. I wanted to share it with our viewership, because the whole idea of having somebody with a beard and a black suit and a, and a, you know, a Hasidic Jew being in a place like China is just so foreign for so many people, it's beyond our imagination. What do you do there? How do you keep yourself busy? How do you live there? It's actually foreign to about 1.3 billion Chinese <laughs> as well. It's a very interesting place to live. It's far away from home. However, on the other hand... You're not even from the States. You're from England. I'm from England. And your wife is from South Africa. Correct. Correct. Okay. And um, that's why we felt it probably better for us to stay in China as not to upset both families. <laughs> you didn't have to make a choice where to live. Exactly. <laughs> this was a compromise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The... Um, interesting part of living in a place like China is it gives people a sense of belonging. What I mean is when a person is back in their home, in their community, they're brought up in a certain lifestyle, in a certain framework, they have a certain structure. It's something that they go along with on cruise control almost. You're talking about Jews I'm who are about, living in I'm talking about Jews that, Jews that are living back home. <clears throat> Everyone has their, so to speak, cruise control of what they do at the synagogue they uh -huh. attend. Because you establish a certain status quo when you're used to it, so you really don't necessarily stop to think about what it means to be Jewish as much as you would when you're in a when place in like Beijing. Gotcha. And uh, there is nothing. Right. And if you want to feel a sense of belonging, you look for something. It was, we, we arrived 10 days before the high holidays 
and uh, I was looking to create a uh, group of people to pray with. It's very difficult, you know, in, in America or in other places I've been in the past, you're looking for people to pray with, you can go out on the street, you can ask someone, excuse me, are you Jewish, etc., etc. In China, you can't really do that. There's only 500,000 expatriates from all over the world in a population of 1.3 billion. Is it legal for you to do that? You can't no. actually go around and just ask people if they're Jewish? It is illegal for us to do that. Why is it illegal? Judaism is not a recognized religion. Though. So you're not a recognized rabbi in China? No. Whenever I'm asked to buy an official of any kind, whether it's immigration or even in a hotel, what do I do? My response is I supply a service for foreigners that makes them want to invest in China. Really? That's the key word. That's the key word. So you Once cannot say that you are giving any type of religious teachings? No, absolutely not. So you're a business in consultant? <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> kind Officially. Of. Very, very, you know, they try sometimes to understand what service I'm referring to. Right. But I say it's a service, you know, they need to eat certain foods, etc., etc. And um, they take to that very well. Interesting. They know that we are there. We know that they know that we are there. And therefore, we uh, use common sense and Did make sure that we... Did you need permission in order to be able to come in there? Did we need permission? Probably yes. Did we get permission? No. Did we ask for permission? No. Okay, we so came there. Your, your as, long as, as long as I do something... I'm sure you're very much noticed in the area. Probably not too many it, beers like yours are running around Beijing. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it happens more often than not that I get into a taxi and um, they start to trying to imitate my uh, cantorial works that I do when I'm in a taxi doing nothing, sitting in traffic for a, a while... <laughs> And once I see that, I say, okay, you know, I, I've already been here a while. Uh -huh. You can speak Chinese? I can get around in Chinese. Interesting. My wife speaks um, pretty fluent Chinese. She went really? to school there. How do you like that? And your kids, how do they get along? Do they have friends? We have in the community over 70 Jewish children. How big is the community itself? Between 800 and 1,000 people. 800 to 1,000 Jewish people living in Beijing. Living in Beijing. Incredible. And these are people who are there for business purposes? They just like to live in they're, Beijing? No, they're there for business. All of them? All of them are there for business. Nobody really goes to a place like the Far East for, you know, the scenery. You know, there's no, there's no family there. They're just there right. on assignment. Most of the people between two and five years. There are some people that have been there for 10, 20 years. Okay. Now, did your wife have friends there? Is she able to... Mix in with the crowd and be a Rebetzin and do things for people? She has, she has friends there. It's, right. much, it's, it's more limiting than any other community that would be perhaps in America, for example, because most of the women that come out with their husbands are working as well. Interesting. So the schedules are completely off. Right. So right. when my wife has time during the day, they're at work, at night they're tired. And right. Wife, you know. I can imagine you have there some very interesting people there. Yeah, we have people from every kind of community in the world. Really? Every background. It's a Jewish UN. 100%. At my Friday night table, there is, it's literally the UN. Except for the Antarctica, we have all five continents. Really? It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. It's an experience that I believe if I was in another community, I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet world Jewry literally at my fingertips. What's it like living under a communist rule? 
Does it, does it affect your day-to-day -day work? Are you able to do the things that you would want to do otherwise? Okay, like this broadcast is only in the States, correct? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say whatever you want to say. I'll leave it up to you. I mean, you know, for us as Americans, we don't know what it's like to live under communist rule. And today there are very few places that are still under communist rule, except, of course, China and uh, Cuba and uh, the Koreas, North Korea. So is it very difficult? I don't want to get into specifics, but... One has to be very, very cautious, whether it's trying to bring in kosher food through customs, that one has to be careful about. There's no negotiating that it's kosher food and that you can't get kosher food in Beijing and then please let us bring it in the country because Judaism is not a recognized religion, so what's kosher? Mm -hmm. We don't see a necessity for that. Interesting. Although we do have our own um, slaughtering facility in order to do it the kosher way right. in Beijing as well. In Beijing. So you have to import your, your milk products or do you take care we, of that yourself? We, anybody coming through... Beijing brings things for you. Brings things, th things for us. So you must have a freezer, kind of the side, uh, the full side of yeah, your actually kitchen. Actually, our entire basement is like one big fridge and freezer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets kind of cold, but like this room. <laughs> is it very expensive to live there? It depends. Rent is extremely expensive. We have a home that's two hundred and sixty square meters, two thousand six hundred square feet, and uh, we are playing close to $4,000 U.S. Dollars rent a month. $4,000 a month. And if I wanted to purchase the place, uh, they would give me a discount, but they told me that it would begin at 639000 U.S. And who would you be buying this from? Hong Kong investors. Uh-huh, okay. So that's we we, live, in, we live in a compound where there's 200 houses. I see. Very interesting. So tell me, Rabbi Fernlich, about your work in terms of your teaching of Judaism or cultural aspects of the Jewish nation, whatever we'll call it. Is your type of activity like any of the Chabad house, any place in the world where you're sharing the beauty of Judaism and you're teaching about the holidays? Yes. However, the difference, though, in, in the community setting is in one day I can have five classes with five different individuals coming from every corner of the globe, right. from Israel, from America, from Brazil, from France, from England. And to jump from one to the other is very challenging on the one hand, and it's very rewarding on the other. It gives people a sense that um, the rabbi is able to identify with them. It's something I picked up from the Rebbe when I saw the Lubavitcher Rebbe distributing dollars on a Sunday, which he would do um, for many years. Together, noticed, with, together with the blessings that we were giving out. Together with the blessings that he would give along with this charity. That he was able to identify with every single individual going by, whether it was an 80-year-old person or a 5-year-old child. And one of the things that people always came away with was that they felt, even if it was only for one second, that the Rebbe was able to focus on them and that like nothing else in the world mattered right. whatsoever right. to the Rebbe other than that. Yes. Thousands of people felt that way. And um, that's, that, that's something that I've incorporated in the way that I approach people. Excellent. And, um, you know, when it comes, for example, on a Friday night table, we have songs in all languages, in French, in Russian, in really? Hebrew, in English, in Yiddish. 
And um, it creates a very warm family atmosphere. People feel at home. People feel a sense of belonging. And um, people don't feel threatened. So you probably have people coming to you that maybe never slid in, foot into a synagogue for years. Yes. Actually, um, one time I received a phone call from a friend of mine, an Israeli friend of mine, who told me that he had met an Australian acquaintance that day. And he asked him if he would like to come to the rabbi's house tomorrow night for services and dinner. And he said that he would, um, that he, that he's not really interested and the man said, no, 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 come, come, I think you'll enjoy it. Anyhow, he called me, he asked me if it was okay. I said, of course. When he came into the house, I noticed that he was, um, you know, he was an elderly gentleman. And I started talking with him. And we had services, and we came, we made the kiddush, and we sang the traditional songs to usher in the, the Shabbat meal. And then afterwards, we did the ritual washing of the hands before eating the bread. And um, he turned around to me after we ate the challah, the bread, and he said to me, Rabbi, do you know the last time I was in service? I said, no. He said to me something that, until today, I feel a chill every time I repeat it. He said, when I was liberated from Buchenwald. Really? After he the said, war? After the war, he said that he was liberated on a Tuesday. The following Friday night, a, um, an American soldier came um, and did some kind of service for them. Obviously, he had a traditional background. These are his words. He said, since then, 50-odd years, he's never stepped foot into a synagogue, which is totally and understandable. To, to Beijing, China, in order to be and able he to came return. to Beijing, and he promised. He was so moved by the experience. We had 60 people that Friday night. 60 he, people? 60 people. And we had a group of um, um, backpackers from Israel that came through. And uh, he saw the, you know, the young, vibrant blood and how they're you know, observing the Shabbat in some way. Right. He was very moved by that. He was moved by the local community. We have a few um, Chinese-born Jewish children within that community. He saw them running around. He made a promise that he was going to come to synagogue every single Friday night, which he has been doing up That's until great. now. When he sat down, there was a lady from the community came over to him and said to him, do you know my father? He said, who's your father? She said, my father's name is Jack Katz. He started to cry. He said, me and Jack Katz were in the same bunker together. Unbelievable. We were the only two people from the priestly tribe in the camp that survived. The Kohens. The Kohens. And uh, we were liberated t together, and I haven't heard of him since. Is he still alive? Unbelievable. And she said, of course he is. And the, m she put them both in contact. And it's That's an amazing beautiful. thing how, after 50-odd years, someone they that you, you spent China. an experience with <laughs> that uh, none of us can sure. understand oh. and comprehend, and they came to China, not only did they reconnect with their roots, they also reconnected with a part of them that had long been forgotten. Unbelievable. So he was ready after 50 years to come home. To come home. That's great. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit more about Chabad around the Far East, what's going on? Because it's just so shocking that we have so many Chabad centers and so many Chabad rabbis and so many incredible things that are going on there. Of course, if you could share with us a little bit about Hong Kong, where I understand you spent some time before you were married, and also the famous seders, the Passover seders that Lubavitch makes in Thailand and in Kathmandu, Nepal. Why is there such a, a revival of Judaism going on there? Many people come to the Far East looking for themselves. 
looking for spirituality. And um, many people are un unaware that within Judaism, there is a tremendous amount of spirituality. It's not right. just, I you know, the, the not just the, exactly the, the practical, do this, don't do this. There's so much, there's meditation within Judaism. And when you set up shop there, and this is the kind of merchandise you're selling to the people that are looking for this kind of um, inspiration, we see a tremendous, tremendous um, um, revival. In Nepal, for example, this year they had 1,800, 1800 Jewish people, people by the Seder. Seder. <laughs> 1,800. In That's Pokhara, incredible. which is a place close by, they had... 1,200. That's also in Nepal. Yes. Now, these are all Israeli trekkers that are just escaping all after, Israeli the after backpackers. being in service, and they just want to get away from Israel for a year or so, and they have it on their itinerary probably to make sure to be in Nepal Correct. for Passover. Correct. Yeah. Even, even those who are actually not seeking spirituality, it like hits you. Right. It's like in the air almost. <laughs> and um, in, in Thailand, for example, they also have 1,200 people for the Seder. And they have, going through their Chabad house, a year, over 100,000 Israeli backpackers. In Bangkok. In Bangkok, Thailand. Unbelievable. It's an incredible experience. They have a restaurant set up there where the food is subsidized. So it's the same price as the non-kosher food. So the Jewish kids can come in, mm -hmm. eat, and enjoy themselves for the same price. Chabad subsidizes it. Chabad subsidizes it for them. It's uh, delicious. If you actually ever go there, ask for the schnitzel. It's like very famous. Okay, I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> if you forget by then, just give me a call. You know. <laughs> okay. And um, you come there 24 hours a day. I spoke to the, um, one of the Chabad rabbis there. And um, he told me that he has no schedule. He doesn't like, you know, go to sleep at 10 and get up at 6 or 7. Because there are people that are sitting there at 4 in the morning and are ready to talk. So he's got to be ready to talk at 4 in the morning. <laughs> So, you know, whenever they have to pray, it's, you know, it's like kind of all the day, right. almost. You know what I mean? There's constantly people there. On an average Friday night, they have between two and four hundred. They've built now a magnificent Chabad house there to cater um, oh, for this facility. I've heard also that they established a yeshiva, a school for learning, in Israel, which is mostly for the backpackers from the Far East who end up coming home to Israel, and they've had this spiritual awakening in the Far East, and now they want to pursue it more once they get home. Yes. So it's That's a school basically dedicated to these people. It's, yeah, it, it, it's really, it's truly, I mean, you really have to go there to, to, to see what the, the work that they do. It's, it's really unbelievable. And how about your work in Hong Kong? Hong Kong, Hong of course, Kong, also has a tremendous community. Hong Kong, when, before Chabad came to Hong Kong, there were 40 families registered in the Jewish community. Today, there is close to 900. 900 families living in Hong Kong. Living in Hong Kong. There's actually more, but registered in the various communities in Hong Kong, there's 900 families. They have uh, four kosher restaurants. They have uh, three retail shops that sell kosher food. They have a beautiful JCC. Chabad right. just now. Um, moved into a new facility. Magnificent. Absolutely gorgeous. And um, they're doing wonderful, wonderful work. People are coming into the Chabad house there and uh, are very impressed by what they see. How about Singapore? Singapore, the rabbi of the Singapore community is a Chabad shaliach, was sent out from the Chabad organization and um, is doing magnificent work. He actually now is in the midst of doing building a JCC 
in um, Singapore. How many it's, Jews are in Singapore? In Singapore, they have about 600 families. Mm -hmm. It's an Iraqi-based community really? for many, many years. Actually, interestingly enough, the first Jews that ever stepped foot in China, to the best of my knowledge, was 800 years ago. It was a group of Iraqi Jews. They haven't, in, in a place called Kaifeng, they haven't had a rabbi there for 180 years. So there's been a lot of assimilation, etc. So there's not really anything left of that Jewish community. However, there are people there that claim that they are from Jewish descent. Mm -hmm. In 1901, the last documented fact of these group of Jews in Kaifeng was in 1901, they sent a letter to the Singapore community. And it's interesting because the first Jews that settled in Kaifeng were from Iraq, and they sent it to the Singapore community as opposed to sending it to the uh, Hong Kong community. The Hong Kong community was around 100 years ago. The synagogue just celebrated its 100th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So the community was there. Right. And I think it's because of the, the similarities, because they, you know, the origin where they came from, Iraq. They sent a letter saying, please send us someone who can teach our community more about Judaism. And they sent a gentleman by the name of Moshe Bron. And he traveled to Kaifeng and was there for three days and returned. And it does not say any specific details why he returned. Interesting. I personally believe that he went there and saw that it wasn't just a teaching job. Um, you know, of Jews that wanted to know more about Judaism. A lot of um, um, reassembling within the Jewish community had to be done probably beyond his capacity, and therefore he went back. But now there is some kind of revival mm -hmm. there. Now, in Nepal, there is a full-time Chabad rabbi as well, isn't yes. there? Yes. What does he do besides Passover? He's not spending the whole year just... Well, there's only... only, only no. <laughs> well, believe me, for 1,800 people, if it was just him and his wife, he may just be doing that. <laughs> However, a lot of potatoes to peel. Oh, so. believe me. <laughs> they um, are there eight months during the year, and the other four months he spends um, traveling around the world, fundraising for... To support the, the, to, to uh, support the activities. activities there. Because there's no local people living there with families that right. can support the Chabad house. Right. And uh, do you have any knowledge of the Chabad communities in Japan, in Tokyo, there's and one in Kobe? In, there's one in Tokyo and one in Kobe. I don't know much about the um, activities going on there. But I know once in a while all the Chabad rabbis I was, have, yeah, I was, have conventions I to Yeah, we have a, once to, a year. Once, once a, year a year we have a convention and we all come together and share notes. Uh, pretty much like what we're doing now right. over this convention. And um, it, it, it's really amazing. Everyone comes with stories. And because you meet so many people from so many different backgrounds with different mentalities and attitudes and perspectives on life, on Judaism, it enriches the experience. And literally every person you meet is another world. And um, on the one hand, it's hard because it's a transient community. So you're dealing with people and you're learning with people and you become friends with people and you really connect. You have a close connection with these people and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. Two years are up, three years are up and they're gone. It's very difficult, especially sure. for the family, especially sure. for my wife and my children. And um, however, the redeeming factor is that when a family comes out to a place like Beijing and they're there for X amount of years, and they are, it's time to leave. And they look where they can settle in a Jewish community that can supply their Jewish needs. 
Whereas before coming to Beijing, they never would have dreamed right. of doing that. So you know, uh, you've uh, accomplished something. Yeah, we, we're, we're pacified with that. Right, Rabbi Friendlich, I want to ask you a personal question, and I want you to words from the heart. You're a young, bright man. You could go and probably do many things. You could go into business. You could be a rabbi, I'm sure, in a very nice congregation in England or South Africa or here in the States. I'm sure your in-laws would, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't cause too much of a complaint either. What is your inspiration for going to such a far away place to be so far from family, so far from what we consider to be Western civilization, to be able to become a rabbi to a congregation in Beijing? When I was 12 years old, I started to learn more about the Lubavitcher Rebbe's mission and purpose in life. And I heard of a story then that really inspired me to try and fulfill his mission and dream and make it a reality. Before the Rebbe assumed leadership, in 1947, he had a program here in the States called Release Time, where he would go to a, a, a school, a non-Jewish school, and they would have an hour a week with all the Jewish kids and talk to them about Judaism. And he organized for other people to go as well to ver various other schools. In the class that he gave, there was a child who was 11 or 12, and she came to the Rebbe and asked him, does he read science books? And the Rebbe said to her, what book would you like me to read? And she said that there's a book by the professor, scientist, Dr. Isaac Azimov. And I'd like you to read it and tell me what you think. And she gave the Rebbe the book. The Rebbe came back then a week later and asked her what was so intriguing about this book. And she said she found it fascinating that Isaac Azimov had this dream, or not really dream, this f theory, philosophy, that eventually there's going to be a concept and described it something like satellite, that a person is able to connect with the satellite, by satellite all over the world. Mm -hmm. And to her, that was fascinating. She couldn't imagine as an 11-year-old child how this is possible. And um, the Rebbe told her then that he has the same vision, that one day there'll be a Chabad house, a home, in all corners of the world, a satellite where a Jew will be able to feel at home well. and be able to connect to. And that's one of the reasons why the Rebbe insisted that a Chabad house be called Chabad house, regardless of how big the organization grows, is because every person has to feel like they have a home. Well, and that's what inspired uh, me, and that's, that, that's why I'm there. You've uh, definitely made a home for many hundreds and hundreds of Jews, and we want to give you a, a big yashakoach. And for anybody who wants to find out more, your website is Beijing. Dot com. Yep. That's Beijing, B-E-I-J-I-N-G. Correct. Dot com. Okay. Thank you very much, Robert Frenlich. And it's the best been my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a fascinating, fascinating half hour. And we want to wish everybody the best. Take care. Have a good week.
Sing, 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 sing,